Welcome to the broadcast of Riverside Church in Princeton, North Carolina. Riverside Church preaching Christ and Him crucified. For more information, check out our website at www.riversidefwb.com. Your Bible, open up to the book of 2 Samuel tonight. So we'll be looking at 2 Samuel. I wanted to get through uh, the rest of chapter 15 tonight. It depends on how you guys act. And y'all act like you're going to be good tonight and act like you're going to pay attention. So I'm sure we'll get through the rest of chapter 15 and we'll jump into 16. We're looking at verse number 30 tonight and we'll get started there. Tonight I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It reports supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of prophecy is divine, not human in origin. We here at Riverside believe in sola scriptura, is the Bible alone. We believe in sola fide, which means faith alone. We believe in sola Christus, which means Christ alone. Sola gratia, which means grace alone. We believe in sola deo gloria, which means God alone receives the glory. And tonight, he certainly will receive the glory at this wonderful midweek Bible study here at the river. As we look in 2 Samuel chapter 15 tonight, I want to remind you that David, he's being exiled from Jerusalem. He's basically been knocked off the throne. But it was his own sin that brought this home. But it was also God showing his mercy and his grace. God could have killed and should have killed David because of his sin but in his mercy and his grace. It helps us to remember that, that all things work towards good for those who love God. Amen? And that's found in Romans chapter 8 verses 28. But this is for David's good. And how is good going to come out of this? As David leaves Jerusalem, he's already heard that his son Absalom is rising up a coup over in Hebron, which is a couple of miles to the north of Israel. Remember Hebron as we studied in the books of Exodus and we studied into the book of uh, Genesis and Exodus how that was the, the capital as the people came into the new land of Israel. We saw through the book of Judges how Hebron was the capital and we also saw how that's where the, the, the kingdom was beginning to flourish. But however when David through his reign conquered Jerusalem, he transferred all the political power there to Jerusalem. So whenever Absalom went to Hebron, he went there to capture the heart of the people because people are nostalgic. They go, oh, I remember when we did that. So Absalom goes there and he captures their heart and he helps them, helps them reminisce about the good old days because at this point, David has got a little bit of age on him. He has been publicly humiliated before of all Israel because he sinned. But now Absalom is uh, gone within the community of the, the leadership there in Israel and he has plugged out certain leaders that have now supported him. And tonight we'll look at that. But what we've been studying for the last two or three weeks is his leaving of Jerusalem. There's a lot we've learned as he goes over the, the brook Kidron. Remember we talked about that's the same brook in the valley Kidron that Jesus passed over as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. There Jesus weeps. He weeps as if it were blood pouring from his body and he actually wept blood and there we see that David wept as he's leaving and going over the Kidron Valley. And then he reaches to the Mount of Olives. We actually saw where David was barefoot and had his head covered, weeping and mourning before God. But we saw our champion, the son of David, that's his nickname, Jesus, who actually will come back in Zechariah chapter 14 with his foot touching the Mount of Olives, causing it to go to the north and to the south, splitting the Mount of Olives. The king leaves in dishonor in Jerusalem and the book of 
2 Samuel. But the king of kings comes and returns once again. One day a champion of Christ destroying the enemies of, his, of him and his, his reign with the power and the glory of his coming. That's the story of Jesus. So, oh Christian, whoever you are, don't let your head hang low unless you're praying. Don't let it hang low because of gas being over $5 a gallon. Don't let it hang low because of distresses and the worries of this life or your mortality catching up with you or people losing their mind around you. For we have a king who's still on the throne. He's all powerful and almighty and he's able to sustain us and to keep us. Amen, somebody. Sorry, I get a little excited when I talk about our King Jesus. Amen. That he would find us faithful. And we begin here tonight looking in verse number 30. But David went up to the ascent of Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. Of course, in verse number 30, we see that sin harms. It only not only harms the person who sinned, but harms those around. We have a prime example just in the past week or so at the mass shootings. It begins in the heart. Amen. It begins at the heart there in Texas when that young man went in there and slaughtered that basically a whole second grade class because of wickedness and darkness. And then over the past... Uh, Weekend, there were many mass shootings, not at, to that extent, but there was many gun violence found in, in our nation over the Memorial Weekend. Now, I'm not getting on an anti-gun rant. It's not the gun. It's the heart that wields the gun. Amen? Because a, Cain and Abel, that, uh, Cain didn't have a gun, but he would have used a gun. All he could get was a rock. The truth is we would kill with anything we could get our hands on him many times. When we can't find something to kill with a weapon, we use our hands as a weapon. If not, then we use our mouth to slaughter them and drag their names through the mud. The problem, the root of the matter, the heart of the problem is the heart. And we see here that sin is the issue as David weeps and leaves Jerusalem. He's weeping barefoot, showing his mourning. Now we can see uh, what a person truly is made of whenever they are knocked off a peg or two, knocked off the throne. Oh yes, we can take the promotions. Oh yes, we take the, the claps on the back and out of boys. We can take that, but whenever we're down and out, we really see the character of the person. How does David present himself before the the public and before God, he walks in mourning. He walks with a contrite heart is what the psalm says. That God will not push away a person with a contrite heart. A person who walks in humility before God. Who goes before God and says, God, it's not about me. It's about you and your glory. We even read earlier where he tells the high priest to go back into Jerusalem. You don't have to come with me. And if God is pleased with me, he'll bring me back to Jerusalem. We would do well, Christian, to have that same mentality to walk before God in humility and say if God is pleased with me he'll do this and if he does that then I'll be pleased either way because not my will much like Jesus prayed but his will be done a lot of us don't want to pray for God's will be done because we don't like his will because it means we are less we decrease. It means that it's not about us. It's, it's, not a, it's not what we want. And many times we don't even pray for patience. I've heard foolish people without wisdom say, don't pray for patience because He'll give it to you. That's what you want if you're praying for it, right? 
That, that you should trust God and trust that He's going to give you what's good for you and to bring Him glory. Remember once again, to call back what I said earlier, all things work towards good for those who love God. Even sickness and affliction, even loss, even torment, torture, all these things bring glory to Him and also it's for our good. Wait a minute, I don't even sound, I know, it sounds ridiculous and a little crazy. But then again, we must remember whenever you sand something down, I'm sure whenever you're sanding down this podium, you if it had feelings, and they don't have feelings, I know in a time and a culture where everything has feelings, if you were to sand this podium down, it would say, oh, I don't feel good. But it makes it smooth, and it makes it into an image of a podium. And if we were to be sanded down into the image of Jesus, I'm sure the sanding and the pruning and the cutting is not going to be comfortable, but it makes us into the image of Christ. If that sickness causes you to pray more, then it's for your good. If that abandonment makes you pray all the more and trust in Him, it's for your good. Amen, somebody. Let's continue. As David is weeping on the mountain, as he's moving with his head covered at the Mount of Olives. In verse 31, And it was told David, Astaniel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Athenel into foolishness. We see in verse 31 that David hears that his old ally, his old counselor, someone he trusted deeply has turned against him and has aligned with Absalom. Now we must know who Athenel is. Athenel is actually the grandfather of Bathsheba. Now things are kind of making sense. See, we must remember that the, the shame that was brought on the house of Uriah, and whenever, uh, whenever David conspired and had him killed, when Joab said, when Joab was receiving orders from David to pull back and leave Uriah there, and the enemy would drop stones on him and kill him there because he couldn't get Uriah to go home to be with Bathsheba to hide his sin of laying with Bathsheba, committing adultery and bringing shame on the nation of Israel. But after all this time has gone away, we don't know the intention of Athenel. We don't know if he planned this. We don't know if he's simply not paying attention to the setting of the son of a king or just being excited of the rising of a, the son of another king. We don't know if he's just jumping on the bandwagon wagon and feeling the, the tide of political change here. But we can look at the, the connections of all the conspiracies and Athenel is a little, maybe, maybe, possibly getting a little revenge upon David. However, David considered him a wise man with wise counsel. And and actually in Psalm 39 verse number 12 hear my prayer O Lord. Notice David, he prays about it and I want you to notice in verse 31 he actually prays to God about the situation as well there. But in Psalm 39 verse 12, hear my prayer O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace from peace at my tears, for I'm a sojourner with you, a, a guest like all my fathers. And then again in Psalm 6 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. We can see here that David is wounded to the heart as he goes out into exile. But then we read in 1 Chronicles 27 verse 33, it helps us understand in verse 33 that Aphneel was the king's counselor. That he was someone who confided in the king and the king confided in him and he reached wisdom. But in the rest of that verse, then Hushai, the architect, was the 
king's friend. We see in verse 33 of First Chronicles 27-33, we see that Aphnai was the king's counselor. However, we see that Hushai was his friend. Now there's one that you can have one that gives you counsel and tells you things of wisdom, but there's one who's your friend that stands shoulder to shoulder with you here in the text. Hashia will actually show up in a few verses ahead, but there's some things I want you to see before we get there. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6 verse 16, here we see that a faithful, faithful friends are like life-saving medicine. And those who fear the Lord will find them, is what it says in Ecclesiastes, that we do well to have friends. And David here is feeling pretty lonely. For now he found out that his counselor, someone who gave him counsel and wisdom, has now sided with the enemy. David is torn because Absalom is his son. However, he is his enemy without a shadow of a doubt. We also see in verse... 31, that David prays about the situation. We do well to pray about the situation, whatever it is. Now, I don't know what your day faced. I don't know if it's hot enough for y'all, but it's, it's a scorcher. And maybe some of y'all want it a little cooler, a little hotter. But I don't know what you faced today. But I want to know, I want to ask, have you prayed about it? I'm sure you're, you're waiting on the money to come in or you're waiting for that person to talk to you. You're waiting them out. You're waiting that situation out. You're moving this piece there. You're, you're thinking about that. You're calculating this. You're expecting that. But I want to know, with all your budgeting and your spreadsheets and all your thinking about it and all your gossiping about it, have you prayed about it? Mmm, i quiet in here. Lord, please turn the counsel of Athenia into foolishness. God, please let that man with all his wisdom fall into foolishness. Lord, please don't, don't let him hold any weight against me because I know he's wiser than me is what he's saying. Uh, well, what he's saying here, David is saying that God, you are sovereign. You're above everything. You are wiser than men. You know all things. So God, I'm asking you to trump or go ahead or be the, the, the checkmate of all worldly wisdom. If you would, keep your finger here in 2 Samuel and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, 18 through 25. Once again, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse 18 through 25. Here we see where Paul is talking to the Corinth church and he's talking about worldly wisdom and how people think they can outmove God, outmaneuver God, outthink God. But here Paul explains for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved by its power of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 18, that's the first verse. Now we look in verse number 19 in chapter number 1. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Here he's saying that God is speaking and saying he will destroy any, uh, any wisdom that the wise has. And their discernment he will thwart. In verse number 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world has not known God through wisdom. It, is, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
I'm going to take a pause here and I want you to just examine a couple of things. He's calling for the wise. Where's the scribe? The one who studies, whose, whose mind is probably, well, the human, human brain's probably around six pounds. Some of y'all probably got eight or nine pounds. I'm not going to look at you. I'm not saying your head's big. I'm just saying you're smart. But uh, then again, uh, I know a lot of people with a lot of degrees, but they ain't got no sense. Amen, somebody. They, they, they ain't got no street sense. But then again, I know people who don't have a lot of schooling, but they have a lot of wisdom. Amen. Well, we see here that he's talking about where's the wise, where's the scribe, where's the debater of this age? Someone who can fight and argue with you. He says God has made the foolish of the wisdom of the world. That those who, who think they have it all figured out, that God has said that's foolishness. That means nothing. It mounts to nothing. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom in verse 21. If you'll see tonight, I'm heading to a place of whenever uh, figuring out something. I, many people I talk to, they say, I'm in this predicament, but I didn't never think I would be in this predicament. I was always two steps ahead. I would think of this. I would maneuver here. I would make this investment there and have a worldly wisdom and use discernment. However, I've got captured by my own folly and I fail. Basically, God is saying here, there's a wisdom above worldly wisdom. He's telling us that the wisdom of the world is foolishness in His eyes. In verse 21, For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That means we can't search Him in the dictionary and find Him. Oh, it's logical. Don't get me wrong. It's logical that there is a Creator. There is a God. That's logical. You know what's illogical? is sin and the passions of our heart. Rage and wickedness and unforgiveness is illogical. Whenever we're motivated by sin, that's illogical. Christian, when we're motivated by holiness and righteousness, that's the most logical thing there is. Through wisdom it pleased God, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In verse 21, we see that God causes people to get saved not from mime teams, not from choirs and music. Oh, yes, don't get me wrong. I love good music. I, I, love, I love when we stand up and we sing our hymnals. But that's not how God designed for people to get saved. And now, I want you to design it like a, I want you to see how it's designed like a, a wonderful meal. The meat and potatoes is the preaching of God's Word. Amen. The stronger the pulpit, stronger the exegesis of God's Word, the stronger the people in the congregation. The better you understand God's Word, the better you can apply it to your life, the stronger your faith will be. This is not folly. This is the wisdom of God. Yes, yes, we could have the best singing group in all of Wayne or Johnston County. We could have in the best singing group in all of North America. But that's not how God saves His people and perseveres them. He does it through the folly of preaching and teaching because He tells us that here. He says it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's the folly of preaching. To hear someone come on a Sunday and a Sunday afternoon and a Wednesday to stand for, before God's people, to take the text of God, to explain it, that we can wrap our minds around it. And it's just not our minds calculating and understanding the words, but the Holy Spirit quickening our hearts and minds to be able to keep the laws and statutes of God. That's the folly of preaching. Wouldn't it be so much easier if we could just fill out an application and just send a check in and we can go to heaven? 
be so much easier if we could just write a check. It, it would not require any effort on our part except a couple of dollars. Well, yeah, I know the economy is going a little tight right now and things are, uh, it's kind of rough. I get that. But people will pay for their salvation, absolutely. But the Bible tells us, according to the folly and the wisdom of us, what will you exchange for your soul? What, will you, what, what good would it be if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? He tells us here, it's through the folly of preaching, the folly, the foolishness, the, the weakness of preaching, where God takes a, a man who's flesh and bone and ashes to stand before a dead church or a dead congregation, and he speaks the words of God, and the Holy Spirit goes across the dry dead bones, and they rattle, they come to life, they stand and become a mighty army. He reaches in and gives them a new heart that calls him to walk in his statutes to live for him that's the folly of God amen. amen we see it pleased God through the folly that we preach to save those who believe in verse 22 for Jews demand signs and, wi- and Greeks seek wisdom there's still Greeks and Jews in our, si- in our society they want a sign I want to see something mm-hmm. the, the Greeks want to hear something new Tell me something I ain't heard before. I don't care about the old rugged cross. I've heard that a thousand times. But for the one who's really been changed by God, you can't get over the old rugged cross. Tell me that again. I can't wrap my mind. I don't, how can he save a wretch like me? Tell me that again. How he suffered and died. Tell me how he is good and righteous and faithful. And all that was accredited to me. And all my sins were transferred to him. Tell me about that again. But the Jew, they want a sign. Let the sky split open. Let it be spelled out in the clouds. Let a Greek have wisdom. Tell me something different. Tickle my ears. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. That's our motto. That's our banner here at the river. And it should be in every church. We preach Christ and Him crucified. We don't preach a marginalized LGBTQ Jesus. Y'all know it's Pride Month. Y'all know that, right? That uh, homosexuals and all those guys, they're rising up. Uh, pornographic people, the people who are molesting children, people who are transphobic. All the sinners are rising up and say, we're proud of our sins. And we're proud of that. We want to live that way. And you got to tolerate us. Not only tolerate us, you got to celebrate us. And if you call us sinners, then you're a bigot and you're wicked and you're evil. Uh, up is down and down is up. We see, we preach Jesus and Him crucified here. The rainbow flag, y'all know that it's the rainbow flag and it stands for homosexuality in our culture. But biblically, it talks about in the Old Testament where God promises He will never flood the earth again because of sin. So what they're doing is mocking God. And I believe in the Novaic Covenant where Noah saw the rainbow in the sky. And when anytime I see that uh, uh, LGBTQ flag flying, I think of His promise towards us. Even though we're sinners and He deserves to come in like a flood and ruin us, He shows mercy to the folly of preaching, calling people to repentance and preaching Christ and Him crucified. Amen, somebody. There is hope. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to give your life over to your passions and your desires. You can be born again, set free by the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified. That's stumbling blocks to Jews. Why is it a stumbling block? Because they they want signs. And folly to Gentiles. Why is it folly to Gentiles to imagine that a, a young man with callous hands about 30 years ago, 30 years old, died about 2,000 years ago on a cross? 
uh, at Golgotha. That's, that's ridiculous. That sounds like something off a TV show. That sounds like something off a comic book. That don't even make any sense. They say it's folly. But for somebody like me who cannot earn their way to heaven, I want you to hear me clearly. It's not folly and foolishness to me. It's where I bank my entire life on. My existence. Not just my vocation. Not what I do on the weekends in the middle of the week. I bank my entire being on that fact that Jesus died for sinners. And it's not foolishness to me. He died for me, the fool. Amen. He says here, but those, in verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It tells me that God is strong and God is mighty. He's wiser. So when, you see how I'm going to tie this back now, when David was worried about Athenia going back to Absalom, and giving him counsel. He leaned upon God. He trusted in God. I, I was talking to somebody recently and I, I said, are you, are you good with numbers? Can you do a lot of uh, finances? And no, but I got a good accountant. I know somebody. I got a, a good accountant. I said, what have you meant? I said, well, I got a good lawyer. So it's always, a, it's always who you know. Nobody can be complete and autonomous in themselves. And, and I, what that means is, uh, uh, how are you going to get to heaven? Well, I, I know a Savior. He's the one who's going to cover me. He's the one who keeps me. And I, I, I know Him. It's, and not in this life. It's not that I, I know a good plumber or I know a, a good yard man who'll cut your yard and weed eat around the house. Or I know a good electrician. I know a good Savior. I know a good Lord who keeps me. And His wisdom is above everybody else. And I'll bank on that and trust in that. For He tells us that the weakness of God is stronger than man. That's what David was saying whenever he was praying. It just so happens whenever uh, we see that the prophet Gad or Nathan, when they wrote 2 Samuel 15, he put that in there to let us know even David in his fallen state, in his shame, now reaping the sin that he committed, he still prayed. We do well to pray at all times. I bet tomorrow you got a busy day. I bet you got a lot to do. Instead of 15 minutes in your Bible, you better do two hours. But if you ain't got none of the 15 minutes, it's okay. That's from Martin Luther. He said, I, I, I got a lot to do tomorrow. I better spend two hours in my Bible instead of one. God's wisdom is better than mine, better than anybody else's. Lord, what do you have me to do? When? How? Where? What? Lord, here I am. Use me. David prays in this situation. And I again present it to you. Have you prayed about it? I got the finances here. I got this set up there. I'm working this. It's like I'm juggling. I got this here. I'm trying to maneuver here to do that. Have you prayed about it? For His wisdom is better than yours. His vision, His perspective is higher than yours. I want you to imagine you're downtown Smithfield, Goldsboro, wherever, Pikeville, and you're standing between two buildings. And you're watching the Christmas parade come by, or July 4th, because that's the next holiday. Or you're watching another parade, because it's Gay Pride Month, whatever. You're standing there in the alley, and you're watching the parade go by, and you go, okay, there's my favorite float. You could only see between the two buildings, because you're standing in the alley. 
But I want to let you know that God's perspective is He's above the parade. He sees it all. He sees what's coming, what's going, what's coming around again. He's above it all. Why wouldn't you pray to a God like that? A God who sees all the blind spots, the dark spots. He sees the corners. He sees around the way. He knows what's coming. He knows what's behind you. He knows what's before you. Have you prayed about it? David prays. Turn back to 2 Samuel with me once again and let's get through chapter 15. He turns and he prays and says, O Lord, turn the counsel of Athenia unto foolishness. And then verse 32 is where we're really beginning tonight. In verse 32, David goes to church. I want you to see in verse 32 when David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped. We see in verse 32 that David left the throne. He goes over the book Hedron. He weeps as he goes. His friends walk away from him. Some walk with him. His even, even the Ark of the Covenant is sent back into the city. At this point he finds out that Hethniel, his counselor, is now joined sides with the enemies. But when he gets to the summit, you will think everything will get easier. Let's be honest, Christian. Just because you go to church don't make your days easier. That's ridiculous. If you go to a church, if you're listening to a podcast, or you're visiting here tonight, or you go somewhere and you hear somebody preach, come to Jesus and all your problems will melt away. They're lying to you. They're so lying to you. In fact, I will probably tell you that your life will get more complicated and probably get a little more wearisome. And the fact is, it should get worrisome because then you'll realize that the sweet by and by is not here. That our, our resting place is not found here. We're here to work for now. That we're passing through. We're pilgrims passing through. And weary pilgrim, I'm going to tell you, there's a day of resting. There's a day where there are no more tears. There are no more tombstones. And there are no more goodbyes. But until then, we must labor. We must put in the work for our master calls us to go into the byways. To go out and tell them about him. The good news of Jesus Christ. To preach the gospel of him crucified to the Jew and to the Gentile and to the Greek. Amen. But we see here that David goes to the summit where there's God worshipped. You would think from this point on, it would get easier for David. He would get refreshed. He would have an oasis moment. He would have a moment where he's able to carry on. That's very possible. He fought to get to church, if we see in verse 32. He fought to get to a place of worship. In fact, as he's walking along and weeping, that's a form of worship. Did you know that God is edified and glorified even in your tears? Because we read in the book of Revelation that He bottles up the saints' tears and He'll present them, present them with the tears on the day when there is no more days. Amen. I don't know about y'all, but I got a whole lot of tears in heaven waiting for me. And He'll probably throw them away and say, you don't need these anymore. Because the Bible says He wipes every tears from our eyes. Oh, that's glorious. That's so good to me. But David comes to the summit where God was worshipped. And behold, Hushai the archite met him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David goes to a place of worship and his friend comes there and he mourns with him. It's good to know that his friend knew where to find David. And that's something that he knew where to find David. At a summit, a place of worship. Your friends probably know you well enough where to find you. If, you're, if you got them kind of friends that find you at the ABC store, then you got the wrong kind of friends. 
If you got a friend that knows where to find you down by uh, one of the boat ramps with some kind of illegal drug in your pocket, then you have the wrong kind of friends. And you're the wrong kind of friend for them. But here, Hushai finds David at the summit, a place where God is worshipped. I'm not telling you to, uh, to get rid of your friends. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not telling you to, uh, to blacklist your friends and ignore them. Because Jesus died for His friends. Amen. Uh, what I'm telling you is bring your friends to Christ. Pull them and compel them. Persuade them. Whatever means you can to get them at a Bible-believing church. If it's this one or one down the road, encourage them in the faith. To come to Christ and not run from Him. We see that David is now at the summit where God is worshipped. That's where David needs to be. A place where God is worshipped. You would think if it was me or you and God had chastised us or disciplined us in such a way that we probably wouldn't be on speaking terms with God at this point. You took my throne. You brought shame upon me. You let everybody know about my business, God. You put my name in the streets. Really, that's our attitude whenever we fail God. And everybody knows we did. We shake our fist at Him and we dare Him to do something about it. But in humility, David breaks himself down before God. We talk about it on Sunday night, the gravity of grace. We speak about how it's like water. That water flows to the, slowest, the lowest point every time. You notice that, right? The lowest places usually get flooded. I don't know if you notice, but we're at the river. and We've known that. that We're in the lowest places and we get flooded quite easy because that's the gravity of water. But grace works in the same way. The high places don't usually get flooded. But those who are high and haughty, lifted up, who are important in their own eyes and full of pride, they don't get any grace is what the Bible says. It's only those who are in humility and low before God that the flood, the flood of the gra gravity of grace goes to the lowest point. David is groveling before God and he's in a place of worship. We do well to do the same. To worship God even when life is not good because we know that God still is good. Amen. Amen. I figured I'd get more amens, but uh, it's okay. We're not done. We see that he goes to a place of worship. Let us do the same. He finds his friend there. His friend is weeping, has dirt on his head. He's, he has his coat torn. That means he's, he's in anguish for David. In verse 33, he said to him, If you go with me, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. Now, verse 33, a lot of people have speculated why he said that his friend will be a burden to him. Well, really, Heshai was an older man. And he probably was a man of high rank within the whole place of Israel, of the whole, of the whole city, the whole place of Jerusalem. He was a high rank and he was an older man who had many needs. Uh, we all know as we get older, our body tells us, hey, you're getting older. There was the other day I was playing uh, a ball with one of my boys. And, and in my mind, I thought I was 18. And I reached out to get the ball and then my body said, oh, you ain't 18. Let me show you. And I felt it the next day. My back and my side, I felt it. However, I've seen the time when I was younger, I would get wounded. And I look at the wound, it would heal right in front of me, like some kind of special ability. However, that's not, uh, that's not evident now as I've grown older. Hushai has probably grown older and David is telling him, we are good friends, but if you go with me, you'll probably slow me down, let's be honest. You, you're probably, you need to be home and in your bed. You've garnered respect. You need to stay in the city. In fact, Hushai, I need you to do something for me is what David says. He trusted Hushai. Hey, remember we talked about in Second Chronicles that Hushai was his friend. 
In 1 Chronicles 27-33, Athaliah was the king's counselor, but Hushia, the archite, was the king's friend. That means he confided in him. He understood him. He knew his heart. In fact, Hushia knew him so well, he knew where to find David. He was at a place of worship. Amen. Let us all have friends like that. Now you might say, well, I don't have many friends like that. Not true. Look around you. We are your friends. I don't know if you ate spaghetti yesterday. I don't know if your foot still got that bunion on it. I don't know what your favorite TV show is, but I know you love Jesus. And that's a real friend. Amen, somebody. We go on and we see that he asked him not to be a burden. But he said, but if you return in verse 34 to the city to, the, to say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in the past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the council of Athenia. In verse 34, you could almost say, well, well David just prayed that God would defeat the council with godly wisdom. Over his former counselor. So he says, who's she out there? Well, I want to use the old analogy of the farmer who leans against his shovel and prays for a hole. You can't lean against your shovel and pray for a hole. Put legs on your prayers. Do, do something. You just don't sit on your hands. You don't just pray for your loved ones to get saved. You go tell them about Jesus. Invite them to church. Compel them. Show them in the Bible what saith the Lord. Here, David uses common sense. I know it's, it's the word common there, but it's very rare in our time and in our time and season in our culture. But David sends his old friend Hushai back to counter the counsel of his old counselor, the Absalom. He, we see in verse, verse 35. Are not Zodak and Athiar the priests with you there? He's saying in verse 35, his allies are the priests. So whichever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zodak and Athiar the priest. Behold, their two sons are with them. There, Amaz, Zodak's son, and Jonathan, Abdar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So we see the we see the the chess work of David. How he makes sure there's uh, uh, someone inside the court of Absalom. To make sure that he would hear the plans of Absalom. That's the old wily David. David who was seasoned on the battlefield. David who probably did not see the coup coming. Now has positioned himself to return to Jerusalem. But we must understand as wise as David is. As much as we've already studied tonight. We've already seen in 1 Corinthians that God's wisdom is above it all. That he orchestrates all things. I don't know if you've ever been to a symphony where the instruments are playing. They're all playing different notes and they have their sheets that they're supposed to play. And you might think the guy up front with the white gloves and that little stick ain't doing nothing but waving at flies. But I will let you know that he is conducting. He is leading the symphony. Our God leads the symphony of creation. He tells the storm to move here. He tells the drought to go there. He tells the corruption of this government to rise. He tells the humility of that people to raise here. Our God is in control. He is the conductor of it all. And that means that he positioned this position for David. We see that 
David now has a line of conspiracy set in the house of Absalom. And verse 37, so Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. We see in verse 37 that our God, like the old song says, our God is an on-time God. Yes, He is. That's how the song goes. You probably heard it. And I want to let you know that He is on time every time. I actually hear many times people say, well, He died before His time. No, He didn't. God is in control. He decides who dies and wins. And you might say, well, they were so young. God is in control. I don't pretend to step up and say, hey, I know better than God. God is on time every time. We see here that Absalom comes into town as David is leaving. In fact, Absalom was hoping to find David unaware that he would kill him, hopefully on his own bed, that his blood would spill out, that he would show his father that he is worthy to ascend the throne and be the king of Israel. But God, isn't that the story of us all? Let's be honest. If it were not God who was on our side. Let's be honest. Look back over your own life. How you almost didn't make it. How you barely got through by the skin of your teeth. It's a miracle your marriage did not go the way it did. It's a miracle one of y'all didn't kill each other. It's a miracle that your children didn't do this or that. It's a miracle that you didn't end up in a ditch somewhere. It's a miracle. But God... Here we see David orchestrated by the power and the might of God who called Absalom into Jerusalem and David out. That's our God. Our God is in control. Can I just take a moment and remind you that our God is in control. Uh, Today I was at Sam's getting gas. It was $4.20. And I do hope next year when I'm listening to this podcast it ain't more. But if it is... I want to remind me as I'm speaking into this recorder and remind you that God is still in control. Your cabinets might look a little bare. Your gas tank might be running on fumes. Maybe your light bill is about to go through the roof. Maybe your constitutional rights will be stripped from you. Your property plundered. Maybe you will be suffering unto drawing blood from your body for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Maybe you'll be outlawed. Maybe you'll be underground. Maybe we'll not be allowed to gather again in a little while in a place like this in liberty and freedom. But our God is still in control. He still controls China where they're not allowed to go to gather as believers. He's still in control in northern Vietnam where they'll kill you. He's still in control in India where the peaceful Buddhists will gather you, hack you with a machete, pour gas on you and set you on fire if you believe in Jesus. God is still in control in the Philippines where it's the number one Muslim region of all the world. God is still in control and He reigns. Maybe tonight you're saying, well, why do things look like they're out of control? Why do things look like they're going away? Maybe you're looking at the situation and not reading the solution. Put your nose in the Word. Get into God's Word so we can get into you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing. If you're wobbling in your faith, you're weak in the knees and you're stumbling and you're not stirred and you've grown cold to the things of God, this is not the time to put your Bible down. This is not the time to not read. This is not your time to not sing to Him and extol Him and lift Him up. Now is the time to lean in all the more on His promises and trust in Him because He is in control. This is the ultimate comfort. 
This is better than having beans and band-aids and bullets hit under your bed. Now, ain't nothing wrong with that. If you do, that's fine. But I'm telling you, there's nothing better than what He says to me and how I'm supposed to live. Because He will keep him in perfect peace. That's what it says in Isaiah 26 verse 3. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is kept on Him. Have you, have you been walking in peace? Are you well today? Even though everything around you is unwell. We must remember He orchestrates. He's in control. He's sovereign. He reigns over it all. And when we understand that, our pillows are a lot softer at night. Amen, somebody. That Egg McMuff is a lot tastier when I know that God's in control. Amen. Let's be honest. Let's look at chapter 16 just for a few minutes. Uh, only about five minutes. Let's look at it. When David passed a little beyond the summit, we see in verse 16 that he's gone past church. He's gone past the place of worship. He's just passed a little bit. This is to let you know tonight you're at the summit or you're at the river. You're at a place of worship. That don't mean that the rest of the day is going to be easy for you. That don't mean that tonight you're going to coast on into the bed and wake up tomorrow and you're just going to have an ego and everything's going to be good just because you went to church. David went to a place of worship. You would expect that God would let things be easier for him. But no, it's not. David, he comes across a, a liar, Ziba. You remember Ziba. He was actually the servant of Bephibosheth. Ziba lies to David. Just because you love Jesus and you serve God don't mean people ain't going to lie to you. That's something your preacher has learned recently. <laughs> I don't like it. I'll tell you a story that I basically live my life off of. Augustine is one of my favorite theologians. And as a child, he was at a place in ancient Greek, Greek uh, Greece. He was there learning and studying philosophy. And he was probably around 12, 13 years old as a young man. And this basically is his personality. In this story, you'll see that his friends were at the window of the schoolhouse and they, they were looking and they're laughing. And Augustine walks in and they say, Augustine, come look out the window for the pigs are flying. The pigs are flying. Augustine goes, really? And he runs to the window and looks out. As he looks out, he gets disappointed and he turns around and he begins to weep. His friends laugh and say, Augustine, did you really think the pigs were flying? And Augustine, no, I really didn't think they were flying, but I'd rather believe that pigs were flying than have my friends lie to me. That's the innocence of Augustine. I know we can be wise as serpents, but gentle as a dove is what the Bible tells us. Amen. And the thing is, if we aren't careful, we'll become cynical and believe that everybody's a liar and not believe anything. That's right. Become cynic and burned in our hearts. And I've been close to there and I've been hurt quite a few times and People ask me, well, why, do you still, why do you still believe them when they say it? Because of 1 Corinthians 13, it says love believes all things. I'm just going to believe you. Preacher, I'm trying this. I'm going to do that. I'm, going to do I'm just going to believe you. And you'll do well. You say, no, that's foolish. But then again, it's a godly wisdom. Who will I hurt believing them? Probably me. But that's okay. He heals me. Amen. He's a good physician, ain't he? Hallelujah. Let's, 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 let's just, just trust God and love. Amen. Uh, that was just a side note. We see that Ziba comes and lies to David, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and skin of wine. 
And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, and bread and summer fruit for the young man to eat, and for the wine of those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, Where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Now if David had time to investigate this, he probably would have saw that Ziba was lying. He probably would have. David leaned upon the wisdom of God and trusted in Him. In fact, his son will be the wisest man who ever lived. But I want you to also see this. Remember the conductor we spoke about earlier who stood at the podium and led the symphony as it sang the story of redemption in all of creation. God orchestrated this moment here that David was lied to. He did? Yes, He did. God reigns over the good works of men and also their sin. He reigns. But I want you to see why. Even though Zimba, he, he, he orchestrated all this, what he showed up with was supplies for David. He showed up with food for the weary and a ride for those who were tired. All based on a lie. But what it did is sustain David even in the wilderness. God is in control. Church, did you know that if we face persecution as a church, it's for our good. Did you know that? There was a time whenever we thought we've peaked and we're at, the, we're at the pinnacle of all society and history when the church was influential, influential in the White House and we helped and had wholesome movies at Hollywood and it was instilled in every house on every corner a godly morality. And those times have shifted. People now are chasing their own passions and they're, they're hardening their hearts and they're wicked. And it's not beneficial anymore to go to church like it once was. In fact, you, you're looked down on. In fact, you're called foolish. Do you remember earlier in the sermon when I said the wisdom of God is folly to the Gentiles, folly to the Jew and to the Greek? Now, truly, we're not the foolish. They are, but they think we're foolish. Because we hear the foolish story of a simple carpenter who claimed to be God, dying on a cross, took down, laid in a tomb, and then three days later rose from the dead. We believe in that. Because what are our options? Our options are eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. What point is there? Jesus is the most logical thing there is. He holds all things together by the power of His Word. That means He's not holding it together. Notice how it's worded in the book of John chapter number 1. It's the power of His Word. He says it and it holds it together. Imagine if He put His hand here or that one there, what He could do. Oh, He did. He died on a cross by putting one hand here and one there and died for sinners like us. That's the story of redemption. So, to go back with Augustine... He just believed it. Tonight, I want you to just believe that. That God is in control. He has orchestrated all of, this, all of this to bring glory to Him and for our good. To redeem us and to save us. It don't get no better than that. You didn't know you can gleam all that from the story of David running out of Jerusalem, did you? I didn't either until I studied it. We do well to study. Tomorrow, if you've got a busy day, spend more time in your Bible. Spend more time in prayer. Because I tell you, we can sit down and watch something on Netflix for two hours. We can read a good book or a good magazine most of the day. Let us 
discipline our hearts and our minds, renewing our mind and our thoughts, growing in faith, studying God's Word to serve Him, to be a disciple. A disciple is one who studies to find himself approved. It's not just the preacher's position to study God's Word. It's all in our position because we're His disciples. We serve Him. Let us bow our heads and pray.